Hello and welcome to Behind the Buyouts, the deals podcast where we sit down with pros from the world of private equity and venture capital and drill down into their deals. Today we're singing a different tune with this podcast. We're going to be talking private equity in the music business. John Bohan is co-founder and Irish head of business development from Apex Group, a private equity fund administrator. He's with us to talk about trends in private equity and music. John, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Steve. And we're also with Michael McCarty. He is co-founder and CEO of Kilometer Music Group. Michael, thanks for joining us. My pleasure, Steve. So let's talk about Kilometer Music Group. You just announced a couple of deals in recent weeks. You're purchasing a stake in the song Closer by the Chainsmokers. And also you've acquired half the catalog of Belly, who is the weekend's co-writer. So you've got a lot of new songs that you're getting royalties to. And tell us about those deals. Yes, thank you. So we manage the Barometer Global Music Realty Fund, which is a limited partnership, and we're the music manager of it. So we acquire the assets and manage them post-acquisition. And those first two acquisitions are we're really excited about them. They represent an expression of our strategy, which is that we're from Canada, and by remarkable coincidence, we are focused significantly on acquiring the globally successful music copyrights that emanate from Canada. And these are two examples. So the first one, one of the writers of the song Closer by the Chainsmokers, which is the sixth most streamed song of all time, was a Canadian named Sean Frank. And Sean is a longtime associate of one of our partners, Gavin Brown, who's a very successful record producer and songwriter. And Gavin worked with Sean early in his career. Sean ended up pivoting from being a rock artist to a DJ and connected with the Chainsmokers co-wrote the song called Closer, which is their biggest hit, one of the biggest pop hits of the last 10 years. And we're happy to say we've acquired most of Sean's interest in that song. The other deal, Belly. Belly is the weekend's primary co-writer. They have worked together for years. And through that deal, we're acquiring stakes in most of the weekend's big hits. And arguably, the weekend is one of the top three artists in in the world right now. So we're very excited about both those deals. So how does this work? Because music used to be sold through records and people would buy records and they buy CDs. Now they're subscribing to Spotify and other services and they're getting music that way. I guess private equity is interested in this because it's a steady cash flow. It's a different kind of business than it used to be. It's almost like a software business, right? Well, yeah, they're interested in, in several. Yes, it is. It's a, it's a long, slow drip of revenue as opposed to the intermittent big bangs of revenue from the sale of something. And the, the world has converted largely from the discretionary and sometimes luxury consumption of music to this continuous consumption of music, or some people say it's acting like utility. And really, every smartphone in the world is a potential commerce point for music now. And the music royalties have long exhibited the following asset attributes, that, but the investment community has really kind of only come to realize this the last few years. It's a steady cash flow, or it's a, a continuous yield, steady cash flow, at least coming from a good catalog. It's non-correlated to the market. That's a really important attribute that people are very interested in. So you get yield, uncorrelated the market. And these days, there's growth because the industry is growing rapidly. And also, people are just starting to talk about this. And this is a new attribute, which is a function of the fact that a lot of the revenue is coming from subscriptions now. And that is, it's also, I believe, an inflation hedge or inflation protected. Because as consumer prices rise, inevitably, subscription prices will rise. So I think that the royalty pool will increase in some correlation to inflation. That's interesting. So there's a lot of good attributes there to the asset class. So when you're buying a pop song, how do you know the pop song is going to stay popular? So like the song like Closer, how do you know what the revenue stream is going to look like in, in two years or three years or four years? Isn't it going to kind of fall off like 
fall off pretty quickly? Or how do you price an asset like that? It's a great question, Steve. So you could divide the catalogs into two main buckets. One would be the older, mature catalogs, and the other one would be the, the newer catalogs. Those two examples I gave you are newer catalogs because the opportunities came to us when they did. Our portfolio will be rounded out by older vintage catalogs. The older ones, it's one of the incredible things about songs that embed themselves in culture. And that is, is that the consumption and the interest in them goes on for decades and decades and decades. Therefore, the revenue does. And if you have a good portfolio of mature songs, it's a really an annuity. And historically, it's a very steady annuity. Now that annuity is growing because the industry is growing. On the newer side, there's also a very predictable decay curves associated with hit songs. And now those curves are actually morphing as we speak because there's a bit of a different consumption pattern in the streaming world. But we believe that we have that modeled out really well. And so we know how it's going to decay. And at the end of the day, all the catalogs are valued on a discounted cash flow basis. So we think we can predict the cash flow pretty accurately. Okay, that's pretty interesting. John, your Apex Group has been working with a number of private equity funds that are investing in music. You're a fund administrator. Tell us about your angle on this, on the music sensation that's going on right now. Sure. So fundamentally, the role of Apex Group in all of this is to act as a a watchdog. We do all the back office administration. So in the initial stages of pulling a fund together, whether that be private equity or edge or irrespective of the type of fund, we will work with the underlying managers, in this case, parameter, to choose you know, the best jurisdictions, best structure type, type of the funds, any other peripheral roles that may be needed, like trustee oversight. Um, and we will be there to make sure that the investors are represented. So we will calculate the NAV of the fund on a, on a quarterly basis and make sure the monies that they're putting into this fund is being deployed into the asset classes that in Kilometer Music Group have reported in that offering memorandum. So we carry out all of those different functions. At the end of the day, report back to a board that sits back. It's an independent board that will sit on the top of these funds. That in turn, then we report statements, contract notes, and underlying investors. So we do that on a global scale. Apex Group is, is 18 years in business. We have about $1.2 trillion in assets under administration. So to put that in perspective, 50% of that is in private equity. So, you know, 600 billion on assets are sitting in private equity. And therefore, these type of asset classes and strategies make it very interesting when we watch these trends of where that flow of capital is going. So you are seeing interest then in, uh, are there other music, there, there have been other music transactions. I believe KKR is involved in one. There's a deal for universal music that's in the works as well. So, John, you think you're going to be seeing more of these types of uh, these structures? Yeah, absolutely. And I think Michael alluded to some of the reasons why that is. I mean, you know, it is a relatively recent in the last couple of years, these portfolios have been growing. So you know, there's a number of stars aligned for that. So, you know, the, the way that music, um, they gather their revenues from the artist's perspective and the stream of music is one. Um, uh, it's a steady revenue stream. It's re- reliable when you mix a classical mix from a different genre, you know, 70s, 80s music in with the, the more modern things, you can get the right mix in return for investors. But then you've got the likes of the pandemic that has hit over the last 15, 16 months and the uncertainty that has created in other markets where generally and traditionally private equity money will seek value. So the, the fact, and again, Michael mentioned the uncorrelated nature of these strategies, it's a safe haven. Seeing as a steady mix, you know, and the source of those revenues are from multiple different 
and revenue streams, whether it's just pure streaming or, or, or movie rights or, or the likes of TikTok and all these other media streams that it's flying down to. So it has greater growth potential than many other markets. Uh, and that's right now just in the mature markets. I don't think, I'm like I'm sure we'll talk about this to some degree, but some of the, the immature markets and Asian markets, you know, some of the colossal continents, Indian markets, South America, where there's untapped potential to get into this in a much bigger way. So I think it's very exciting. It's an asset class we're going to see a lot of growth from in the future. Okay, great. Michael, so how does the artist fit, fit into all this? I mean, I guess the most famous case I can think of is with Taylor Swift was complaining a little bit about how she lost some of the control, some of the benefits of her work. And so she re-recorded some of her albums. Where does the artist fit into all this? And what would you say to people that are, you know, have been critical of some of this musical uh, licensing or musical uh, transactions that have been going on? Well, let's separate the issues. I mean, Taylor's issue is slightly different than what we're dealing with. So let's set that aside for a second and I'll address it in a minute. Basically, why do artists want to sell? So this is a question that certainly our investors ask in the beginning when we first meet them. And there's a number of reasons. So COVID is certainly one of them. You know, you had people, globally successful artists who rely on touring for the majority of their revenues and they have high overheads and large entourages, et cetera. They had no touring revenue for going on two years now. So that's a big motivator to want to raise some capital somehow. Another one is estate planning. So if you look at the older generation, the boomer generation that near the end of their careers, there's been a sea change in the attitude towards estate planning in the part of the artist community. And that is they used to believe that the best thing they could do for their heirs and the best thing they could do for their own legacy was to will their rights to their heirs. And people now realize that these are incredibly complex assets. Very few families and heirs are set up to handle them properly. They create tremendous division amongst the heirs. So now I think the attitude is generally, I'm going to turn it into money and let them fight over the money rather than the rights. Other aspects are some of the younger creators, their mentality is more of a check-based culture than waiting for royalties. And they think it's a service that we provide. We'll take multiple years of their future revenue and hand them a check for that now. They're thrilled about it. The other thing is that just a human nature, as the valuations are increasing, just like you're living in a neighborhood and you hear that your neighbors are selling their homes for prices that you never thought imaginable, that's what's happening in the music world too. So people who never thought that they were never going to sell are now realizing, oh, I never realized it was worth that. Maybe I'll consider selling. So all those elements together. So these are all very willing sellers, and we're dealing directly with the artists. When it comes to Taylor Swift's issue, so she was, I think, upset that she had no control over her recordings, her master recordings. So we're largely buying and investing in the copyrights to the song. So if somebody else records the song, that's great for us. Multiple versions in the marketplace, that's fantastic. If you own the original master, and somebody else records it and has success with that, and that cannibalizes the first one, then that's not a good thing. My belief is that she's actually trying to create a cannibalization of the original ones to make a statement about the fact that she was unhappy with what happened to them. Now, there are people out there who might say that Taylor Swift probably did have insight into the fact that the company was being sold and certainly probably had the financial wherewithal to buy them. Why she didn't, I have no idea. So in the case of what we're doing and what most competitors are doing, there's no controversy. They're very, very willing sellers. Okay, great. So that's pretty interesting. So what does the deal pipeline look like for you, Michael? You're operating out of the barometer of Global Music Fund. You know, how many more transactions do you think we'll see? And what are the challenges ahead you know, as more people get into this and it gets more competitive? Well, we're looking to deploy 200 million US to acquire these catalogs and make this portfolio. 
We have currently, we're in discussions with about $90 million worth, and we believe that we could easily deploy over $300 million if we had it. So, you know, we chose $200 million as a sort of like the bottom end of what we consider to be meaningful scale. And we believe that we're going to have no problem deploying it. And we're in the middle of our raise right now, and it's going very well. We happen to be matching the incoming money with the outgoing money really well, thanks to our partners, Barometer Capital. And it's great. In terms of your question about the competition, there's definitely a lot of competition, and there seems to be more competition all the time. Is that going to drive valuations to an unsustainable point? I don't have a crystal ball, but I will say this. I'm one who believes that As I said earlier, we're in the early phases of the greatest era of prosperity or expansion, if you will, in the history of recorded music. And I think that the growth story is far longer and far bigger than anybody is officially declaring right now. So I think they still have a long way to go. For instance, John mentioned earlier TikTok. So we're in an unbelievable environment where music discovery has changed. The radio used to be one of the primary discovery tools. Now it's the end of the chain. You get get on radio once the world has discovered you. Most music discovery happens in social media now. But what's interesting about that is that discovery mechanism is all monetized as well. So as our music's being discovered, we're making money. And then people are driven to a place to listen to it, which makes us more money. Things like Peloton and all the networked home exercise platforms, those are all licensed and monetized. There's a company in Toronto that I helped get going a few years ago called Lyric Find, and they invented monetizing lyrics in the digital age. Every time you search for lyrics online now, those searches are paid for, thanks to Lyric Find. When you see the lyrics scrolling on your streaming service, that's all paid for. Oh, you want them to stream in time to the music? That's more money. The new ways to monetize music in the digital space, I think, are endless. And every six months, somebody seems to come up with a new one. And I think that will keep on going for a long time. Okay, well, that's a good snapshot of what's going on in the digital music space and private equity. Uh, Michael, that was really interesting. John, you have any other parting thoughts? No, just look forward to you know getting more clients like Barometer uh, and Kilometer. We're 100% behind this. You know, each jurisdiction has its own set of very clear rules. When you're raising capital, you need the right structure. So we will guide and help all of these strategies in Europe or the US or Asia, wherever, wherever it comes out. So I think it's a very bright future. So wishing Barometer and Kilometer the very best of luck with this one. And John, we're happy to be partnered with you in Apex as well. We really appreciate your support. Likewise. Okay, John Bohan and Michael McCarty, thank you for joining us. This is Steve Jelsey with The Deal. This has been Behind the Buyouts Podcast. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, Steve. Thanks. Thanks.